The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taking up, after through after that through the Holy Ghost he had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Father, we thank you for your mighty word. We thank you for your anointing. We pray that they would meet together this morning in this sanctuary, Lord. I pray that I would be a vessel to speak your word. And I pray there would be an anointing upon the hearts and the ears of the congregation as well. All of us to hear and receive this morning the everlasting infallible word of God. We thank you and we praise you for that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You guys may be seated. We're speaking of things this morning pertaining to the kingdom of God. Amen. Pertaining to the kingdom of God. There are a lot of things in our lives that don't pertain to the kingdom of God. I don't know what you had for breakfast this morning, but donuts do not pertain to the kingdom of God. Kalachis do not pertain to the kingdom of God. Coffee is close, but does not pertain to the kingdom of God. I had a protein bar, certainly does not pertain to the kingdom of God. I don't know where you got your clothing this morning, but those stores and those brand names or off brands or whatever, they don't pertain to the kingdom of God. Your, uh, oh, Spirit Field Edgewater, close. Um, the youth, they'll catch you. They're quick. Sharp. Yeah. I don't know what kind of uh, toothpaste, Crest, Colgate, Rembrandt, hopefully something, whatever it was that you used does not pertain to the kingdom of God. Your hairspray, your hair gel, your hair dryer, your shower. Wherever you work, it doesn't pertain. Where you go to school doesn't pertain. Who your best friend is doesn't pertain. Most of the things that you do see, hear, feel, touch, whatever, smell during the day, they do not pertain to the kingdom of God. So you might hear a couple of things, and hopefully if we're talking about the kingdom of God, you'll hear a few things this morning that maybe strike you as odd, maybe strike you as different, maybe immediately make you go, I don't know about that, or I'm not sure about that, or I've never heard about that. It's okay, because we're not talking about things that are familiar to everyone this morning. We're talking about things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's just look at verse 2. Until the day in which he was taken up. What happened there? We all say that we're Christians. We all believe in Jesus. But what about that he just floated off the ground and got taken up into heaven? Is that normal? Does that happen every day? Do you see that happen at the mall? I don't. David Blaine, Chris Angel, they can get about this high off the ground, and that's just trickery. He, all the way into heaven. David Copperfield has really good invisible wiring, so he can fly off a stage, but he's not really flying off a stage. Jesus was taken up into heaven. After that, through the Holy Ghost had given commandments. How many of you have ever brought the Holy Ghost up at a party? Hmm? Go to a graduation party. We got graduation parties coming up pretty soon. How many of you are going to sit down and be like, how about that Holy Ghost? 
let's talk a little bit about the Holy Ghost. What are you talking about? Well, you're a Christian, right? Yes, I'm a Christian and I'm a Christian. Let's talk about the Holy Ghost. Do you think the Holy Ghost is in this room right now? I don't know, but I think there must be something in the punch. I don't know what, why, what are you talking about Holy Ghost? So we're Christians, but we keep a lot of it on the inside and some of it, if we let it out, it's different. It's odd. It's not familiar. We're okay with things that don't pertain to the kingdom of God because they're familiar, which makes them somewhat acceptable. Commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. When's the last time you met, maybe you went across the street, the parking lot rather, to the donut shop. The people that work over there, two of the nicest people in the world, they are donut shop owners. And that's cool. That's fine. You might have had salesmen come and knock at your door. You've certainly had them call you on the phone. They're salesmen or whatever. You make up an excuse. You hang up. Bill collectors. We don't like them. That's a normal job. You'll get phone calls. You go, you go out to eat. You run into waiters. You run into managers. That's all, that's all. We understand that. Oh, you do what? Oh, that's cool. When's the last time somebody walked up to you and said, I'm an apostle? And you're like, oh, cool. Yeah, so an apostle, another apostle. How many of you introduce your friends like that? This is, uh, what does he do? He, he's an apostle. Oh, I'm going to go over here for a little while. See, that's not normal, but it pertains to the kingdom of God. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. So first he's, he dies, then he's resurrected. He overcomes death, hell, and the grave, which makes a really good sermon. But to sit there and say that you truly believe that, and then he rises up into heaven, and then through the Holy Ghost he gives commandments to the apostles. None of this stuff is normal. But that's what we're talking about this morning, things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So I want you to just get your head wrapped around that for a second. If you ever leave church service and you don't feel like you've heard something that you don't hear every day, it might not have been the best church service. So we can talk about things that we do every day we can talk about how to be nice we can talk about how to smile we can talk about how to and that's all good and we should talk about that but if you don't hear something pertaining to the kingdom of god being assembled together with them he commanded they should not depart from jerusalem but wait for the promise of the father which says he you have heard of from me in other words that's a pretty big statement Pretty big statement. He asked his people, commanded them to not depart, but wait for the promise of the Father. Now, some of you have read ahead and could answer this question, but if you didn't read ahead and I were to ask you, if I were to ask a room full of, say, a thousand Christians, what is the promise of the Father in the New Testament? What's the promise? How, first of all, how many of you know that you've been promised stuff? Yeah? That's even a difficult thing to admit. Yeah, I believe in God, but do you believe that he's so personal that he promised you something? That's step one. You're his child and he made you promises. Next time you look in the mirror, I want you to think about that. You know your name, you know your face, you know how you look, you know who you are, you know what you do for a living. Do you know when you look in the mirror that you are a child of God and he made you promises? Do you want everything that ha this life has to offer with him? Because we're only here for a short while. 
And then we go to heaven and by far, uh, heaven is, is far greater than here on earth. But as long as we're here on earth, he said, I've got some pretty cool things for you pertaining to the kingdom of God. So it's up to you. You can go through hell all your way to heaven, or you can have a little bit of heaven here on earth on your way to eternity. I've made you some promises. Here, here's the fortunate yet unfortunate truth. There are two types of people in this world, literally two types of people. Those that are conformed and committed to the world system, which is absent of God. They don't know it, but we know that the king of that system, the God of that system is the devil. The Bible says that in black and white, the God of this world, the devil is the God of this world. This world is the enemy of God. That's scripture. Friendship with the world is enmity with God or making an enemy out of God. That's scripture. Jesus uh, gives us a little balance by saying you are in the world, but not of the world. So it's not that we can't uh, dress, you know, with, with somewhat modern fashion, not that we can't have any friends, not that we can't have any acquaintances, not that we can't go to a public school, not that whatever. It's not that. It's that you don't commit yourself to that system. Don't commit yourself to that system. Are your rules and regulations and the way you live your life based on God's word because it never changes? Or is it based on the culture and the time in which you live? Most of us are Dr. Spock, children of two worlds. I'm not really a techie. I just saw the movie. I want you all to make any assumptions. That's a Hebrew letter, by the way. He's, he's a Jewish guy, the original Dr. Spock. That's the sheen, first word in Shaddai, so he made that up. Anyway, enough about Star Trek. Star Wars is better. <laughs> Star Wars is better. Okay. Um, point being, most of us dabble a little bit in the world, I'm sure, and do our best to live in uh, the kingdom of God, which is the other system, the other type of person in this world that has committed themselves to God committed themselves to following God, not to be perfect, but to learn a little bit every day, to grow a little bit every day, to walk in the kingdom of God, to live for God and not to live for themselves or this world. Yeah. I feel like going on all different kinds of rabbit trails. This is just a little, I feel like it's a, uh, like a, um, like a Bible study on steroids, you know, this morning, it's kind of a church and a Bible study at the same time. So just throw little weird tidbits out there. That's all right with you guys. Uh, Weird tidbit number one. It's probably number two or three. Yeah, we did Star Trek. So we'll go number three. Um, There is obviously a Bible that we have. The enemy also has a book. There's literally a satanic Bible authored by Anton LaVey. That doesn't matter. Point is, the first commandment, and there are commandments in the satanic Bible, the first commandment is do as you will. That's the first commandment. You would think it was something real evil. It's not evil. It is evil, but it's subtle. It appeals. So we're taught when we're little kids that the devil is big and red and scary and has a pitchfork and it's fire and it'll burn. You can't attract anybody to you if you look like that. That's not what the devil looks like. The devil is suave and beautiful and has a marvelous voice and is attractive and offers gifts and appeals to your flesh. Doesn't make you want to run away. He says, oh, no, 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 no. Don't worry about all the all the rules and, and regulations. Just do as you will. Would you like to try that fruit? You should. You'll your eyes will be open. You'll be like us. You'll be like gods. 
Your, some versions say you'll be like God. The original version says you'll be like gods, lowercase, like the angels, basically. Either or, pick your theology, either way, that he's attractive like that. So two types of people, those that do as they will, and those that find their solace in the Garden of Gethsemane, crying out, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. So which system are you a part of? Number one, here's the kicker. If you're a part of, or somebody that you know is a part of system number one, the world system, whose God is Satan, whether they know it or not, if they are part of that system, there are blessings available in that system. Like I said, he's attractive and he will appeal to your flesh. There are ways in the political realm, there are ways in the business realm, there are ways to lie, cheat, steal, kill, destroy your way all the way to the top and be one of the richest people in the world. And saddest and most heartbroken and empty and everything else. But you, you can get up there that way. And then there's the other way, the kingdom of God. And we haven't all figured it out yet. We just know that we're supposed to live for him, love him, take his statutes, his commandments to heart. We can't promise anybody that they're ever going to be wealthy, that they're ever going to be rich, or that they're ever going to be one of the most powerful people in the world. But we can promise them this, that on rapture day, they will be among the elite. Some will be lifted up and some will be left behind with all of their money and all of their power, all of their wealth and no hope. So we make that promise. The most difficult way to live your life is halfway in, halfway out. Because then the enemy really doesn't want to bless you because at least half of it's going to go towards his enemy, which is God. And God can't bless you at least fully. I mean, I think he finds little ways if you're asking my opinion, but according to the word of God, he cannot bless you. He can love you because it's unconditional. But the blessings are conditional. So you're halfway in, halfway out, never able to find the level of success or the level of fulfillment, really, that you want. Because we think we want money, we think we want fame, we think we want all that, but what we really want is fulfillment. And we think all that stuff will fulfill us. We can lay down at night and have no problems, have no worries, have no trouble. Peace, love, and joy... You can find it in the Holy Ghost. Let's see. We are in Acts chapter 1, verse number 4. Commanded they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise. Everybody say the promise. promise. Let's try that again. Everybody say the promise. The promise promise of the Father, which he says, you have heard of me. So what have we heard from him consistently. What is the promise of the Father? Again, put, put ourselves in that room with a thousand Christians. What is the promise of the Father? Salvation. Okay, good guess. Eternal life. Okay, good guess. What is the promise of the Father? Uh, bless coming in, bless going out. Okay, good guess. What is the promise? That he'll take care of me. Good guess. What is the promise? He'll never forsake me. That's right, and that's a great guess. What is the promise of the Father? You might get a thousand different answers. In the Bible, there's one. The promise of the Father. Right now we're talking about things indicative to the kingdom of God. This is decision time for some of you in this room right now. It is decision time. Because you were taught somewhere along the line, 
in a nice, fancy Sunday school environment, the niceties about God and reasons why you should be a Christian, and you've decided to be a Christian for those reasons, but you've never even encountered or understood or for a moment sought the promise of the Father. I'm not taking away your salvation. I'm just telling you, it's decision time. You're only accountable for what you know. Love me or hate me, I might be about to tell you something you don't know. From that point on, you'll be accountable. But I'm telling you, it is a blessing. It is a blessing. Are you a Christian? And we'll do this rhetorically. Don't raise your hands. Are you a Christian? Yes. What does that mean? That means you're a disciple. Because you're under the disciplinary or the discipline of Christ. Yes? Christian means little anointed one, little Christ, little Jesus. That makes God your father. And your father has some promises for you. So here's what some of us have done. We've accepted the son, Jesus Christ, and we call ourselves Christian. And that's great. But we haven't accepted the father. How have we not accepted the father? Because the father introduces himself with gifts and promises. And we haven't received any gifts or promises because they're scary. Because they don't say Calvin Klein. Dating myself, that probably doesn't matter anymore. They don't say whatever's popular now. We don't know what they look like. We don't know how to handle them. We can't go to the store and buy them. They're not given out to the popular. They're not given out to the best athletes. They're not given out to the smartest. They're not, there's no way to achieve them. So they're scary. How do we get them? All you, you simply accept the Father. Accept Him. He has a promise for you. The promise of the Father, which He says, you've heard from the Son, or from me, Jesus. For John truly baptized with water... But you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? This is what they thought the promise was. He said, hang out and don't leave until you receive the promise from the Father. And they're thinking, oh, you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. No. The promise that you've heard of me from the beginning. The baptism of the Holy Ghost. No doubt there are people, even in this small group, that have never heard of the baptism of the Holy Ghost because the church itself is very quick to accept what Jesus did on the cross, to accept the death, the burial, and the resurrection because there's nothing that we have to do about that. We just have to tell the story. We just have to believe the story. We just have to accept the blood. We just have to accept the sacrifice. And we're able to accept that when that story is all done and Easter time is over and we begin walking in the valley of decision to the next step in our Christianity. It comes with something more. And it's scary because it's not enough to talk about it. He's asking you to receive it. Amen. Let's go and see where have we heard this from him before. You may not be a Bible uh, scholar or maybe even all that familiar, so let me tell you something that you'll eventually figure out on your own. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are four different accounts of the same span of time. They are not four different accounts of the exact same events. 
not every disciple was at every event. Not every disciple had the same angle on every event. Some of the disciples only encountered some of the stories secondhand from a story that was told from somebody that was there. Some of them were there at some of the things in which they have really told their scribes to write down. More than likely, they didn't write it themselves. That's how things worked back then. Point being, four eyewitnesses, four accounts of the same time period, but not all the same events. So what you figure out is that not every event makes it into all four Gospels. Few events make it into three out of the four. good number of them make it into two. A lot of them stand alone in one gospel or the other. To my knowledge, there is only one thing that makes it all the way through all four gospels and into the subsequent book of Acts following the fourth gospel. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Matthew chapter 3, verse number 11. Says... I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. This is John talking. But he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. And you would think that what he says next is he comes to die on the cross or he comes to be resurrected from the dead or he comes for a million other reasons to heal to open blind eyes, to open deaf ears, whatever. Imagine, imagine this. We're in Sunday school this morning with little children. And we gather them together and we say, John the Baptist was the friend of Jesus that came before Jesus to tell everybody the story about what Jesus came to do. We said, so... John was standing out in the river, a river named Jordan, and he was baptizing people. What is it? What is baptism? What does that mean? Little kids, right? Oh, that's where you get dunked underwater, and I'm sure multiple reactions. Oh, no, can't swim or whatever. I don't know. So you tell them the reason for that, and they're excited, I'm sure. Probably run out of the class and ask their parents to be baptized, some of them. Awesome. So he's standing out there and he's telling the story of Jesus. So what do you think he was telling the crowds that Jesus came to do? Came to die on the cross. Came to be resurrected. Came to heal people. Came to save people. That's right, little Jimmy. That's right, little Johnny. That's right, little Mary. Very good. Thank you for volunteer Sunday school person. We appreciate that 110%. And that is good. Not perfect, but good. Imagine if we didn't leave it at that, but we said, actually, you know what the Bible says? John said that he was baptizing with water, but Jesus came to baptize you with the Holy Ghost. What would the little children say? Well, what's the baptism of the Holy Ghost? It's my little kid voice. It's the best I got. Well, then we could explain it to them. And guess what little kids would do? 
But little kids go, oh, I don't know. My church, when I was growing up, they just didn't think, I don't, I don't think that's far. I think that was for just 120 in an upper room in the Acts chapter. I, I think, you know, that modern theology, that stopped back in the 1800s. And I know what you're saying. It's really just languages that they didn't learn, but they're real languages. On the, uh, my, my, mm, my parents told me not to listen to that. <laughs> nope. That's what adults do. Little kids want to just want to know what it is. You tell them what it is and you teach them, and guess what kind of things happen? Christy, how old were you when you received the baptism of the Holy Ghost? Seven. How's that possible? Somebody, when she was a little kid, taught her what the Bible said instead of the Sunday school curriculum that we think everybody is accept. We, we think we're doing somebody a favor because we don't want to scare the little kids. Kids don't know what's scary yet. They'll go pet a lion if you don't warn them. I remember I took my kids to a petting zoo for the first time. I was scared of what some of the little animals were going to do. They didn't know any better. They're walking up to goats and then chickens that are running around scared. and They're trying to get away from the kids, and they're trying to run over and pet them. You know, they're trying to, I know that chicken could peck their little eyes out, or the goat could bite them in the back of the leg. or the. They don't know. They just think they're going to eat their hay and pet them on the head and... And everything ended up fine, but I know every single one of those animals is dangerous in its own way to somebody that's two foot tall. They don't know. They're not going to be scared of the Holy Ghost either until they get older and nobody's ever told them about it. Then it gets scary. It's like a headache when you're little, right? When you're little, a headache's a headache. The older you get, it might be a tumor. I think I have a brain aneurysm. Oh, my God. I'm not sure I should go get checked out. Is there such thing as hair cancer? We get all freaked out, get all worried, because I don't know what happens to us as we get older, but we get more scared of stuff. But John said straight up, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Mark chapter 1, verse 8, John says, I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. I have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. I don't know what you were taught growing up, but I want to believe the word of God. I've seen water baptism. I know what that is. I know that means I must be surrounded and immersed by water. What is Holy Spirit baptism? I mean, tell me about it. I don't know. I know water baptism happens like in a in a horse trough or a swimming pool or wherever. Do they have containers of the Holy Ghost? Can I get dunked into that and come back out? How do we know? What is it? I'm willing, whatever. I've just never heard of it. Luke 3.16, gospel number 3. John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water. We know what that means. But one mightier than I comes, the latter of whose shoes I am not even worthy to unloose, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. Everybody say, the promise. The promise. John 1.33, and I knew him not. That he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom you shall see the Spirit descending and remaining on him. The same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. Jesus did come to die on the cross. He did come to resurrect. He did come to defeat death, hell, and the grave. He did come to perform miracles. He did come to raise the dead. He did come to cast out devils. He did come to work amazing miracles. But the one thing that he said for sure in the beginning that I want you to know that I came to do 
is baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And that seems to be the one thing that most of the church doesn't understand, recognize, or hasn't heard of. Amen. We've heard of all the rest of it. We even accept most of it, some of it. He didn't, he didn't start with any of that. Acts chapter 1, verse number 5. Takes us back to where we were. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. What is the promise of the Father? It is the baptism of the Holy Ghost. You may or may not know when you see the moniker Spirit-filled in front of the name of a church, what they are claiming is that they believe in the baptism of the Holy Ghost. There are two divisions of non-denominational churches. Let's go through some of the denominations. Baptist denomination. Don't teach the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Methodist denomination. Don't teach the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Presbyterian denomination. Don't teach the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Lutheran. Don't teach the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Catholic. Don't teach the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Uh... Episcopalian don't teach the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Any of them that I'm leaving out other than Pentecostal do not teach the baptism of the Holy Ghost. There are really two places to get it. The non-denominational church, that's only if it says spirit-filled, if it says community, they're not going to teach it. And Pentecostal, which will teach it, you're going to pay a real real heavy price (laughs) to to get it. And to stay there, however, because they teach a lot of other stuff as well. Here's what's interesting. Accredited with bringing the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Ghost back to America in a earth-shakingly profound manner are the Wesleyan brothers, who are the founders of the Methodist denomination, who planted that denomination by a Holy Ghost-inspired, tent-filled, healing extravaganzas, evangelistic movements back in the 1800s, and prayed to God that the movement they were a part of would never become a denomination. But it did, and they don't teach it anymore. I was hired by a Methodist church a few years back, and I I was hired as a youth pastor, and we built a spirit-filled youth group inside of the Methodist church, and they hated it. Took them two years to kick me out, but they finally got it done. You know what it is? It's like when Jesus says, no man can take my life, but I lay it down freely. They tried to kick me out earlier, but it wasn't time yet. So I told them, I'm just not going to go for at least six more months. So then they continued to pay me for They tried to can me at Christmas time. Come on. That's terrible. So six more months. And uh, their kids were getting the baptism of the Holy Ghost. So they didn't like that. They didn't understand it, that... We were going out and evangelizing. We were knocking on doors because the kids were fired up. And we weren't telling people anything other than, hey, we're from the church down the street and we want to know if we can pray for you today. Is there anything we can pray for you about? A lot of them would say, yeah, I love prayer for this, that, or that. We could pray with them, tell them a little bit about the Lord, invite them to church, move on. Believe it or not, parents got insanely upset. Not because they thought their children's safety was at risk, which I could have understood. I mean, we were doing everything you could to be safe. But I would have heard that argument, okay. They were upset because Jesus wouldn't have done that. And I was like, wow, your Jesus wouldn't have done that. My Jesus walked right into the temple and flipped over tables and was real upset at everybody because they had turned the house of prayer into a den of thieves. He was a lot more in your face than that. Yeah. Anyway, 
So that was, here, but here's the cool thing. In the Methodist denomination, there is, there has begun a spirit-filled movement within the Methodist denomination once again. Small, but there. Inside the Baptist denomination, there is a Holy Ghost movement that started years ago, and it's getting bigger. If you've heard of Ron Phillips, he was originally part of the Baptist denomination, one of the biggest churches in the Baptist denomination to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. They were in a conundrum because they didn't want this baptism of the Holy Ghost inside their denomination, but they didn't want to strip Ron Phillips of the title of Baptist because he was on TV and he had a really large church and was really good for their name. So he wrote it out to the end and he eventually did it himself. There's a... You can drive down one of the major freeways. I think it's 45, might be 59 in Houston. And if you keep looking over to your right, you'll eventually see a building that says Spirit-Filled Catholic Church. There's a Spirit-Filled movement inside the Catholic Church. There's a Spirit-Filled movement inside the Presbyterian Church. There's a Spirit-Filled movement inside the Lutheran Church. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees can get as upset as they want. They can go right back into their little religious meetings, but they can't stop the camaraderie as Jesus Christ comes riding on the donkey right past their establishment. They can come outside and yell and scream and say, hey, what are y'all doing with these palm branches and making all of this noise? We're in here trying to have a meeting about God. And in the meantime, God is riding down the center of their street, wanting to bless them with everything. They can get as upset as they want. The Holy Spirit will not be denied. It will not be contained as long as there is an element of God's children who are willing to receive the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father will be available. Amen? Amen. This Holy Spirit, what is it? Well, I think it's important to understand a little bit about holiness and a little bit about the Spirit. And we'll wrap it up with, uh, with that thought. Going to Leviticus 23, real quickly, I want to tell you where we are at. On God's calendar, Leviticus 23 is really the chapter of God's calendar as pertaining to the feast. The reason I'm bringing this up is because what we know as Easter is really Passover, and there's something significant that happens right after that. And we just came through Easter slash Passover. Leviticus 23, verse 15. You shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath. This is right after the, um, the holiday of Passover or unleavened bread. From the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, which was something they were commanded to do, seven Sabbath shall be complete. The Sabbath is every seventh day. So it's seven times seven, which is 49. Even until the morrow after the seventh Sabbath, you shall number 50 days, and you shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. You shall bring out of your habitation two wave loaves of two tent deals, they shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits of the Lord. Some of that will be important before we end. The point there being that there is a 50-day period from the time that Passover ends, which is labeled as counting of the Omer, and you count 50 days. On the 50th day, you arrive at the next feast, which is called the Feast of Pentecost. So when we get into Acts chapter 1, and it says that he was shown alive for 40 days by many infallible proofs, there's a 10-day period that preceded that that you can read about in Luke. When you put the 40 and the 10 together, you come up with 50, and so they received the promise of the Father on the day of Pentecost, which will be lined out in the scripture. It'll say that the day of Pentecost was fully come. We'll read that here in a moment. That's why the Pentecostal denomination, which literally means 50 days after, is based on this baptism of the Holy Ghost. Because it came 
on the day of Pentecost. Let me ask some of you may know, according to the Jewish people, what day of the week is the Sabbath day? Saturday. So right here it said on the 50th day or the day after the Sabbath, you shall bring this, these loaves and all this shall happen. So the day after is Pentecost. So what day of the week does Pentecost fall on? Sunday, right? So if anybody ever approaches you and says, who gave you the authority to have church on Sunday when God's original Sabbath day was on Saturday? What are you heathen people doing meeting together on Sunday, which has happened more than a couple of times? You can tell them to consult God because he is the one that messed it up. Because what he did was he added 3,000 souls to the church and birthed it through the Holy Ghost on a Sunday. Oops. And so the Saturday before really wasn't all that important in the light of things. So I agree it should be on Saturday. God went and messed it up. You should go talk to him about it. Maybe if all of us get together and talk, we can get it switched back to Saturday. But for now, we're going to do Sunday. Also, the guy that invented the names of the days of the week, how do we even know he was right? Today could be Tuesday. Nobody knows. So, that being said, let's go to Exodus chapter 3. What I want you to realize is that right now we are in the counting of the Omer. The counting of the Omer. In other words, where you sit in your Christian walk as of Sunday, April, whatever today is, you're right in the middle of the approach to Pentecost, which will be in early June. God does things. Paul said, I wish that you would walk circumspectly, not as fools, understanding the days, because God does things in cycles. God does things in patterns. So recognize that you are in, right now, the midst of the pattern of leaving the Passover and approaching the Holy Ghost. It's a very unique time that comes around every year. And we're believing God to do miraculous things on this Pentecost Sunday. So understand that. Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. There's a lot in this little little, uh, caption of scriptures, and we're going to end on this thought. How many of you know that you are called the bride of Christ? We understand that? We are the bride of Christ. Amen? Amen? The bride of Christ. Who is his dad? Who's, who's Jesus' dad? Yeah. Why's that confusing? Who's Jesus' dad? God, okay. So if he's Jesus' dad, and we are Jesus' bride, who is our father-in-law? Yeah. Okay. So be nice to your father-in-law. He is a representation. Moses kept the flock of his father-in-law. Okay, that speaks to ministers for sure, but that speaks to all of us. Because in some way, shape, or form, whether it's inside your household, whether it's in your group of friends, whether it's in between you and your spouse, we are all keepers of the flock. Yes? Of our father-in-law. Not our flock. It's our father-in-law's flock. Not our flock. Our father-in-law's flock. I would have liked for certain things to happen differently at Edgewater Church. I would have liked for certain things to to take off at certain times. I would have liked for it to go a certain smooth way. But it's not my flock. It's my father's flock. My father-in-law's flock. It's his flock. I think I could build a bigger church if I didn't have to talk about the baptism of the Holy Ghost, but it's not my flock. It's my father-in-law's flock. 
I don't want to have to put up with all the arguments about somebody speaking in tongues. I'd rather just forget about it. Let's go with the whole thing that it stopped in 1800. And let's just talk about loving each other, smiling with each other, building big buildings and big groups. I'd love to just make it the power of positive thinking because nobody would get offended. People wouldn't hate me. People wouldn't hate other people, whatever. They wouldn't have to go, you know, that church is not right. This is a cult. That's whatever, blah, 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 whatever the thing is. But it's not my flock. It's my father-in-law's flock. And he said, when somebody comes into my flock, I have have this promise that I made. And I want to give it to him. Amen? Amen. He left the flock on the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even Mount Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said... I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see it, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, but put off your shoes from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Holy ground. What I get from this is at some point, as you are tending or being part of your father-in-law's flock, he is going to do something abnormal. Bushes don't catch on fire by themselves, and if they do, they burn. Trying to convince somebody that a bush can be on fire and not burn is just as difficult as trying to convince somebody that the Holy Ghost can make you speak a language that you don't understand. I saw a bush burning today, but it didn't burn. Okay. It's a cool story. See you later. Some of us are going to notice this is what's happening to you right now, whether you realize it or not. We're presenting to a burning bush. And you're going to have to decide whether you're going to stop, turn aside, approach it, and see what it's about, or just act like you didn't see it in the first place. And just keep walking. Because what's going through your head is there's a bush burning, but it's not burning. Nobody's going to believe me. Just keep going. My brother told a funny story one time. (laughs) Uh, I didn't think about the whole story before I said that. I can't tell the whole story, but I'll tell part of it. Um, he came, he's, we're five and a half years apart. Uh, we went to the same high school and I was already graduated by the time he was in high school. I, at some point in my high school career thought for some reason it would be very, very cool and necessary if I could sit at home and come up with a homemade joke of my own that nobody ever heard before and just see how far it got. So I did. And I can't tell you the joke. I wasn't a Christian back then. It was clever, but it's not repeatable. So, and I told my brother, he was younger, you know, I told him at home, whatever. I think I tried it out on him to make sure at least he would laugh at it before I went and shared it with the masses. So, God forgive me. I mean, I hope it's died, and I'm going to tell you what it is. But um, anyway, so, you know, five and a half years go by before he's in high school, and he, he said one day, he was walking down the hallway, and there were two kids standing next to a locker, and one kid told the other kid my joke. 
And he said he stopped to say, my brother made up that joke, but instead he went, never mind, you don't believe me. And he just kept going. Which is probably right. They wouldn't have believed him. Like, okay. It was a pretty proud moment for me. Not so much anymore. It was not really a good joke. So the point is, this is one of those moments where you have to decide, are you going to stop and address the truth? no matter what the response from other people is, or are you going to continue as a keeper of the flock, but in denial of what you saw that day? Moses turned aside and said, I've got to check this out. And it was when God, let's look at verse four, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, then he called unto him, out of the midst of the bush. In other words, God is giving you the opportunity to walk right by and he's not going to say anything to you. But if you stop and contemplate and decide to walk toward it and acknowledge that it exists, he'll call you from the midst of that thing, that burning thing. And Moses said, here am I. And he said, don't get too close Put off your shoes from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. This is the first place the word holy is used in the Bible. And this is why the Jewish people take the meaning of holy to be a balance between the physical and the spiritual. Because the fire representing the spirit and the bush representing the physical, the fire did not consume the physical, did not, uh, did not destroy it, And the physical thing, the bush, did not quench the fire. They were both able to coexist. And that is miraculous. For a bush to catch on fire and burn happens. For a bush to catch on fire and the fire to be put out, that happens too. For a bush to catch on fire, stay on fire, but not burn up is a miracle. So sometimes we see things of a spiritual nature and we're not that impressed. That happens to people. That person's a weirdo or whatever the case may be. I'm not talking about in this room. I'm just talking about spiritual things in life in general. And sometimes we see physical feats. Somebody sets a world record every couple of years in the Olympics, whether it's sprinting or uh, swimming or skiing, or we see amazing physical things all the time. And it's cool, but it happens. Start to expect it. It's when the physical and the spiritual coexist that it's miraculous so that's truly what the word holy means we take holy to mean goody two-shoes kind of thing but what it really means is the spirit and the physical are able to coexist that'll be important when we're talking about the baptism of the holy ghost moreover he said i am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, God of Jacob, and Moses, hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and bring them up of the land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. What land is that? The promised land, the promised land right? 
under the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So this is God's promised land. Whenever he, uh, whenever he introduced himself for the very first time as holy, it was for the purpose of taking his people from a land of slavery to a land of promise. So what good is it to understand and partake of the holiness of God? My friend, you've always been in the land of slavery. You're a slave to your flesh. You're a slave to your sin. You're a slave to your reputation. You're a slave to other people. Well, I can't approach the things of God because my friends might not understand. Slavery. I can't approach the things of God because I've been, I've, I've sinned too much. Slavery. I can't approach the things of God because my life isn't right. Slavery. I can't approach the things of God because I don't have time. Slavery. Slavery. You are in the land of slavery. And God is saying, if you just keep walking past that burning bush and you never turn aside and take a look at it, you're just going to be trudging along in the land of slavery. But if you will approach that burning bush and for one time in your life, understand and accept the holiness of God, the balance that, yes, he has physically saved your body, but he spiritually has a promise for it, then he will lead you and guide you into a land that flows with milk and honey. You can be a slave your entire life and probably end up in heaven. I'm not the judge. Or you can be delivered into the land of promise. Everybody say the promise. The promise of the Father is holiness, a.k.a. the Holy Ghost. To be baptized with water is to be surrounded by water. To be baptized with the Holy Ghost is to be surrounded by the Holy Ghost. But he said, I came to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. That is to be surrounded with fire. So guess what happens when you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost? You become that bush. You're on fire for God and people have to decide whether or not to stop and behold what God is doing in your life. A famous man once said, if you want to gather a crowd, set yourself on fire because people will show up just to watch you burn. Everybody say the promise. Our worship team, whoever that's going to be this morning, can come up. And we're going to end with these thoughts. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost was fully come... They were all with one accord and in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire and sat upon each of them. Difficult to understand. Let me give you a little insight as we end this morning. There is a type of angel spoken about by Isaiah the prophet called a seraphim angel. Seraphim shares the same prefix as serpent. You can hear it. Seraph, serpent. Seraph is a serpent in the uh, Old Testament language. The uh, fiery serpents that were disturbing the children before Moses lifted one up on the pole, those fiery serpents are the seraphim. 
when you look up a seraphim in the Hebrew, what it's described as is an angel with a bronze, fiery, serpentine body. Four different types or four different uh, options for what their face looks like. They have six wings. With two, they cover their face. Remember, Moses hit his face. With two, they cover their feet. Remember, Moses had to take his shoes off. And with two wings, they fly. And guess what they say when they fly? They cry out one thing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And Isaiah says, as they fly and sing that song, the pillars of heaven shake and tremble. Serpentine, fiery, cloven tongues like as a fire they saw. A rushing mighty wind, what do you think might be going on? Sounds like giant angels with serpentine characteristics have entered the house because the flapping of their wings would be a mighty rushing wind. God said that he travels on their backs. He brings the promise. This is a fulfillment. It is a picture bringing a portion of what is available in the throne room of God that sits on top of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant into our realm in a spiritual way where the spirit can inhabit the physical and neither one consume or quench each other. It is the seraphim angels, the holy ones that cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who are delivering the promise for the first time into the upper room on the day of Pentecost, apples of gold and pictures of silver. It is a word fitly spoken. It joins together heaven and earth. It is the promise of the Father. Everybody say the promise. promise. And then what happened? Sat upon each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And for some reason in Greek, that word is not filled, but fulfilled. I think it's fulfilled because that's the fulfillment of the promise of the Holy Ghost. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were dwelling at Jerusalem, devout men of every nation. When this was noise abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? How do we hear every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Uh, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, dwellers of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, Cyrene, strangers of Rome, Druze, proselytes, Cretes, Arabians. We hear them in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God, 70 different nations. How is that possible? They were not speaking those languages. They were speaking one language, the language called tongues, which the Bible goes on to define is a language that no man understands. It goes on to define that it is the tongue of angels. How appropriate that angels brought the promise because that is the tongue that's being spoken. But there's a second miracle in the hearing. 70 different nations and what they said to each other was we hear each one of them in our own language. In other words, the guy from wherever The guy from Mexico heard them all speaking Spanish. The guy from Russia heard them all speaking Russian. The guy from the Middle East heard Arabic. The other guy heard another language they speak over there. There might have been an African guy that heard them all speaking that click language. Whatever the case may be, they weren't speaking any of those languages. They were speaking in tongues. Why is that? Because that's the voice of the Spirit. 
That's the voice of angels. That's the promise of the Father. Well, what good is that for me and you? It allows you access into things pertaining to the kingdom of God. It is the full acceptance of the Father. It is the promise that you were promised even before age seven. It's something that you should have been taught in Sunday school. On behalf of the church, I apologize if you were not. There have been three great awakenings that have touched America. Each one of them was characterized by an outpouring of the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Somebody's going to try to tell you it's not real. There are millions of voices from the past that are screaming, Oh, it's real. It's very real. America has a testimony. The land is crying out, the Bible says, waiting for the manifestation of the sons and daughters of God. The land is crying out, oh, it's real. It's real. There are voices in the Methodist church going, I don't think it's real. John Wesley and his brother are screaming out from the grave, it's real. People have tried to tell me it's not real, but they... I, fortunately, I got it very quick, early in my acceptance of salvation. So to tell me it's not real is like trying to tell me that I don't exist. I, I hear your arguments. I don't want to say they're meaningless, but I've already experienced it. Sorry. Sorry about that. It's like somebody trying to tell you an airplane isn't real when you've already been on one. Well, God, you're really smart. You're making a lot of sense, and I don't know how to argue with you, but I just, I've been on an airplane. That's the crazy thing. I could tell you all about it. I'm just not as smart as you, but I've been on one. It's real. And it's for as many as the Lord our God shall call, goes on to say in Acts chapter 2. Everybody say the promise. You're a child of God. You were promised of the Father. It's for you, it's for your children. It's for as many or as far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. This is message number one in a series on the Holy Spirit. And we're going to refer back to a lot of this information as we move forward. We are a spirit-filled church, and God is doing a resurrection work. So do me a favor. Invite your friends. Invite your family. It doesn't even matter if they stay. Everybody deserves to hear at least once. What is the promise of the Father? What is the promise of the Father? For those of you that aren't sure, if you've experienced the baptism of the Holy Ghost, everybody go ahead and stand to your feet. For those of you that aren't sure, there's going to be more about that next week. But as we see, the Spirit gave utterance for them to speak in tongues That is what accompanies the baptism of the Holy Ghost. That is the sign that it has fallen, that you have received it. If that hasn't happened to you, it does not mean that you're not saved. It does not mean that you're not going to heaven. It does not mean that you're not a Christian. Next week, I'll explain a lot more about that. You have all of those things. You have all those promises, and that's legit. Romans, the book of Romans tells us, call out the name of the Lord, accept that he died on the cross for your sins, rose again three days later, the sinner's prayer that we recognize. You believe that, you accept that, 
I'm not the master of your salvation. As, as far as I know, the Bible says that means your promise is heaven. Here's my experience, though, because that happened to me when I was eight. But the Holy Ghost didn't happen to me until I reaccepted the Lord right before I turned 21 to the dismay of all of my friends and fraternity brothers. From the time I was eight until the time I was 21, I struggled. I mean, if I thought about it every day, daily, with a little thought in the back of my head, am I really going to heaven when I die? Am I sure that I'm going to heaven when I die? Am I 100% sure that I'm going to heaven? I mean, I love God, but I'm sitting at the frat house. I'm about eight beers in. I'm not sure if I died right now that I'm actually going to heaven. If I pray for forgiveness before I wake up, does that put me back in heaven the next day? Every once in a while, I struggle with, is God real? Because, it, I mean, what do you do? It's been a while. I haven't, I don't know the Bible. I didn't go to church. I was just a Christian basically because I was an American. If you have those struggles, and going to church consistently doesn't end those struggles, by the way. If you have that thought and you're unsure, I haven't talked to everybody in the world, so I can only give you my experience. And my experience is none of that went away until I received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I don't know what it is about accepting the Son and the Father and then receiving the Holy Ghost to have all three. But something about that completes you. I'm not perfect. I mess up. I fall into sin. I have to ask for forgiveness just like everybody else. But I do not struggle. I, don't, I really honestly don't think I've had a single day since I was baptized in the Holy Ghost 11 years ago that I've ever thought, am I really going to heaven? I'm sure of it. Something clicks. It's not about anything I've done or haven't done. It's about the blood. I know I'm going to heaven because of how good he is. But repeating that is not the same as having that revealed. You know what I mean? So I encourage you, if you haven't received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, you need to seek that. We're going to have an altar call here in just a second for anything you want to have an altar call for. If you want to be prayed for to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, from here on out, we're going to have a section of the altar dedicated to that. And the Bible says you have not because you ask not. It also says you should ask, seek, and knock. So I've known some people that have asked and not received it, and they never decided to seek it. They just asked. Asking is step one. Seeking is step two. You'll get so close, close enough to knock on the door and receive it, step three. I got it like 48 hours within accepting him again for the second time. My sister, who lived in the same apartment with me, heard the same messages, made the same acceptance and went to the same church. It took her nine months to get it. But she got it. There's an off chance. I'm never going to admit this. Possibly it means a little bit more to her. Because she had to seek it for nine months. That's not necessarily a bad thing. The thing is, she sought it. We went to church at least three days a week. Always an hour and 15 minutes if traffic was good one way. And she was there every time. And she was at the altar every time. And then I heard her seeking it in her bedroom. She actually received it in her car on the way to work. Which fellow traffickers didn't appreciate, I'm sure. But she did receive it. And she was safe and sound. That's seeking it. Asking is first step. 
Seeking is the second step. Knocking is the third step. So as you continue with us through this series, hopefully that inspires you. Hopefully that motivates you. Just seek it, seek it, seek it. Seek and you shall find.